welcome back to True Crime San Antonio. I am just another San Antonio native, and thank you for tuning in. Another week, another story. We're about halfway through our first season. I got a few left for you till the end of the year, so don't worry. Our story today is one that I came across and knew I had to do. Officer Hector Garza laid down his life to help a young domestic abuse victim in Jessica Garcia. When they talk about heroes and a cop's cop, they mean officers like Hector Garza. But first, San Antonio True Crimes This Week. A San Antonio man set fire to a bedroom and left the house with his bedridden grandmother inside. A man has been arrested and charged with arson after investigators say he set fire in his bedroom and left the house with his bedridden 95-year-old grandmother inside. It happened in the 8300 block of Glen Shadow in Northeast Bear County, near Converse. According to an arrest warrant affidavit, Sergio Castillo, 37, set fire to the comforter on his bed on September the 3rd. His father heard the smoke alarm and ran to find flames nearly reaching the ceiling. Castillo's father put the fire out with water from the kitchen while Castillo watched through a window from outside the home. Castillo's brother called the fire marshal's office five days after hearing about the fire from his father because he was concerned for his grandmother's safety and was worried that the fire would reignite. When investigators arrived at the home, they smelled smoke from an open window. They entered the home through a window after knocks on the door went unanswered. Investigators heard a woman's voice from inside the home and found her in the bedroom alone. The woman was checked for smoke inhalation but refused medical treatment. Adult care services was called because the woman had been left unattended. Investigators say they found charred holes on a mattress and ashes in a bedroom, in the living room, and in the hallway leading to the backyard. They also found charred bedding on the back porch along with the cigarette lighter. According to Castillo's brother, Sergio hadn't returned home since the incident. His father thought Castillo might have been under the influence of drugs when he started the fire. Sergio Castillo was arrested on September 10th and charged with arson of a habitation, a felony. San Antonio police said Thursday that a body found in Comal County on Wednesday could be that of Crystal Garcia, 32. The body was found Wednesday night in a field along York Creek Road near Interstate 35 during a collaborated search between San Antonio Police Department, New Braunfels Police, and the Comal County Sheriff's Office. Police say Central Texas Autopsy is working to identify the remains, which could take several days. Crystal Garcia, who is a mother of four, has been missing since September the 17th. Garcia's mother called the police for a welfare check on Saturday when she didn't come pick up her twin daughters. Police found the lights on in Garcia's apartment on Wurzbach Road and her car in the parking lot. When investigators made way into her apartment, they found blood on the bedroom wall and evidence of blood throughout the apartment that had been cleaned up. A security camera that had been in the kitchen was ripped off the wall and missing, but a camera from the apartment complex showed a man entering her apartment and then later leaving with a heavy-duty garbage bag. On Sunday, a family member of Francisco Javier Garcia Ventura called police to say that he had confessed to them that he beat his girlfriend to the point that she stopped breathing. 
and said that Ventura had taken her body to San Marcos. Police took Garcia Ventura into custody on Sunday, moments before he was about to board a bus headed to Mexico City. The arrest affidavit states that Garcia Ventura is Garcia's boyfriend, but the Garcia family has disputed that since. Garcia's cousin said that they may have talked at one point, but doesn't think that she wanted anything to do with him. As of Wednesday, Garcia Ventura remained in jail on a $200,000 bond on a charge of tampering with evidence. The Comal County Sheriff's Office initially started the investigation, but turned it over to San Antonio police after determining that the woman was killed in San Antonio. On Wednesday, September the 22nd, the Texas Department of Public Safety announced the arrest of a man in a connection to an almost 30-year-old case. Thomas Ray Galindo, 50, was arrested Friday at his home in Brazoria for the 1993 killing of 15-year-old San Antonio teen Emily Jeanette Garcia. Galindo was taken to Comal County, which is where the crime occurred. DPS said that Galindo was 21 at the time he and Garcia were acquaintances. DPS said that Garcia was living away from her mother and sister at the time and staying with friends in the northeastern part of San Antonio. She was known to hang out with friends in that area of the city and frequented pool halls. Garcia, who had recently found out she was pregnant, was last seen alive a few days before her death. On February 25, 1993, Garcia's nude body was found near Cranes Mill Road and Canyon Lake in Comal County. DPS said she had been strangled and sexually assaulted. Her body was identified in 1994 after a family member saw a local news report and contacted law enforcement. After the investigation came to a halt, the Comal County Sheriff's Office renewed the investigation in 2017. And in early 2021, at the request of the Sheriff's Office, the Texas Rangers Unsolved Crimes Investigation Program began reviewing the case. The initial investigation included several people Garcia was acquainted with, including Galindo. The ranger and sheriff's detectives worked on the investigation, re-evaluating the entire case, and re-interviewed numerous people, revealing new information which ultimately led to Galindo's arrest. He's being held in Comal County under a $100,000 bond, and I really hope that they got the DNA evidence to hold him. I was looking into this case a while back and there wasn't a whole lot because it's an ongoing investigation. I'll keep you updated. Alright, I think we're good. Here we go. Episode 7. Warning. This story depicts accounts of violence and adult themes that may be found disturbing and unsuitable for some. Listener discretion is advised. Jessica Garcia was 15 when she married Frank Garcia. He was 21. She went to John F. Kennedy High School. He was a senior there and dropped out at the age of 22 as a senior. Not long after, 
she moved into the tiny two-bedroom home with Frank, Frank's parents, and his sister on South San Eduardo Avenue on the inner west side of San Antonio. She gave birth to her daughter within the year and then to her baby boy three years later. The young wife was described as a nice girl, but fearful of everyone in the home. Jessica's co-workers, including her friend Gloria, testified she appeared at her workplace at least six or seven times with bruises, cuts, and little red dots on her neck where Frank tried to choke her. That her husband would make her check in with him, or he would call at specific times. Jessica had been cut off from her family. Frank Garcia monitored her every move, and Jessica would eventually tell co-workers that her mother-in-law did the same. It probably felt more like a prison than it ever did a home. San Antonio Police Officer Rodney Denton was the officer who took Jessica to the Bear County Battered Women's Shelter on December 16, 1994, after being assaulted by Frank. Jessica reported to the employee at the shelter that she had been physically and emotionally abused by her husband. This seems to be the only time she asked for help from anyone outside of her family in the eight years she suffered at the hands of Frank Garcia. About three months before the incident that would claim her life, Jessica's waist-length hair that she loved and took so much great pride in had been cut short up to the base of her neck. Jessica's friend and co-worker Gloria testified that Frank had forcibly cut her hair. But according to her stepmom Sylvia, Jessica told her it was cut that short so that her husband couldn't drag her around by her hair when he attacked her. On Thursday, March 29, 2001, Jessica called her stepmother about 7 a.m. She said she'd had enough and asked for help moving out of the house because she and her husband had fought the night before. Sylvia told her to start packing and said she'd pick her up. It was at this point that Eustacia Garcia, Frank's mom, either phoned or left a message with Frank to come home because his wife was leaving with their children. Eustacio then called 911 to keep Jessica from leaving. Officer Hector Garza responded to the call and informed the mother-in-law when he arrived that Jessica had the right to leave and take her children with her. Sensing no danger from anyone in the house, Officer Garza left. Sylvia then secured the help of her sister and brother-in-law, Jessica's aunt and uncle, named Rosario and John, to help move her out. It seems like all parties knew of Jessica's continued suffering and abuse and were all eager to get her and the kids out. When the three arrived at the house on South San Eduardo, they first thought Jessica had decided not to leave. Her mother-in-law said Jessica had changed her mind after all. But then Jessica started taking her belongings out in trash bags. John called 911 to make sure that they would get out of there safely. It was a second call to police that morning. Sylvia testified that she overheard Jessica telling Frank over the phone that she was leaving him, and Frank said he was on his way. Frank's father was overheard telling the stepmother Jessica wasn't leaving unless it was in a body bag. John and his wife Rosario then assisted Jessica in carrying the bags of clothing out of the Garcia residence into the trunk of his white Cadillac. Then, Frank Garcia who had been on his north side delivery route for Bill Miller Barbecue, 
returned in what seemed like a matter of minutes. His loud work truck could be heard racing up the block and coming to an abrupt stop as he jumped out and left his truck parked in the middle of the street. Jessica was walking out of the house at this moment, hoping to just leave, but Frank grabbed her in a headlock and forced her back into the home. Everyone terrified of what they were witnessing froze as they knew Frank could be violent and interfering might only provoke him more. John testified that nobody heard any screaming and then for the second time that morning, Officer Garza responded to the domestic call. Maybe it was his area to patrol and I believe it was. Or maybe he just heard the address come over the radio and thought since he had made contact that morning, he'd have a chance to calm the situation. When Officer Garza arrived on scene, he was flagged down by John and told that Frank had taken Jessica inside by force. And so Officer Garza, as he had done so many times in his career, chose to put himself in harm's way to protect a stranger. Officer Garza walked into the cramped bedroom where Jessica cowered behind one side of the bed, her husband yelling at her. Frank Garcia had his back to Officer Garza and he held a MAC-10 out of the officer's sight. Frank quickly turned and opened fire twice on the officer, hitting him in the chest but aiming for his head because he knew officers wore bulletproof vests, he would say later. Frank's mom told him, don't shoot him anymore. And after that, Garcia said his mind just went blank. He then turned to his wife and shot her three times in the face while she held her young son. Jessica and Frank Garcia's five-year-old daughter watched it all. One witness reported seeing Eustacia Garcia wipe blood off the girl. Next, Frank carried his MAC-10 to the porch and fired at his wife's relatives, at least a few of which struck their vehicle and the one that he left in the middle of the street. When the MAC-10 ran out of ammunition, Frank went back inside the house to grab another weapon. He then cowardly shot Officer Garza two more times before reappearing outside holding an AK-47 and shot wildly until that weapon ran out of bullets too. When John heard the shots, he directed his wife to call police and inform them that shots had been fired and went and grabbed a gun he kept underneath the front seat of his vehicle and fired one shot back. John was hit once in the leg as he escaped the barrage of gunfire. He explained to police later that he thought Frank may not be a safe person, which is why he brought the gun with him, and that he only fired one shot because he knew kids were in the house and he was afraid of hitting them. Sylvia was hiding behind Frank's truck in the middle of the street when she saw Frank chasing after John as she fled for safety of the school. The school I'm referring to is Emma Fry Elementary. It was located directly across from the Garcia residence and it was a school day. South San Eduardo Avenue is a very small street. They could barely have two cars parked on either side and still be able to have enough room to drive through. The school couldn't be more than 100 feet away from the Garcia residence, and the front door of the school was directly across from the driveway of the Garcia residence. The fact that Frank opened fire in the direction of the school is absolutely appalling. No children or staff were hurt in this incident though, unless you count the psychological trauma Frank inflicted on his kids. 
the then vice principal of the nearby Emma Fry Elementary School said she noticed a police vehicle in front of the Garcia residence when she arrived at school at around 7.30 that morning. She later noticed the police vehicle was gone when she saw Jessica outside between about 8.45 and 8.50. And around 9 o'clock, she was alerted to a problem by other staff members. And as she exited the campus building near the Garcia residence, she saw a man later identified for her as John running towards her and yelling, get out of here, he's shooting at everyone. She looked toward the Garcia residence and saw a man in the yard holding a rifle, who then pointed it at her or in her direction. As she and John attempted to flee, she heard four shots. The school custodian let her and John back inside the school, and once inside, she climbed to the second floor, ordered the school locked down, telephoned school district police, and looked out and saw Frank with his rifle in the front yard, walking away from the school. Examination later of the school's exterior disclosed several indentations on the front doors, as well as a hole in the window screen that hadn't been present before the shootings. Frank went back inside to reload his weapon. Seconds later, Officer Robert Carter arrived at the scene. Officers Garza and Carter had been friends for years. They had worked adjoining patrol districts and covered each other in scores of dangerous situations. Officer Carter had no way of knowing then that his friend and fellow officer lay dead inside the tiny house. Officer Carter knocked repeatedly and announced himself before entering the Garcia residence. He heard a box of bullets hit the floor and footsteps running in his direction. He heard a rifle racking and smelled gunpowder and blood. Frank came out and pointed the AK-47 at the officer, but when he saw Officer Carter's weapon drawn on him, he retreated, shouted, I give up, threw down his rifle, and offered no further resistance when cuffed. Officer Carter would later testify that the house was chaos. SAPD surrounded the area within minutes, and word spread quickly that an officer was down. Nobody could have ever expected it to have been Officer Hector Garza. Frank Garcia may have given up, but he made sure to let police know it was on his terms. Stating to homicide detectives, I could have killed a lot more. Officers testified Garcia was calm and matter-of-fact, and described him as cocky, arrogant, and laid-back. According to court documents, in his five-page formal written statement, executed only hours after the fatal shootings, Garcia admits he deliberately fired at Officer Garza's head multiple times and then turned his weapon on his wife. On September 18, 2001, Frank Garcia was indicted by a Bear County grand jury for capital murder. The guilt-innocent phase of Frank's capital murder trial commenced on February 4, 2002. In addition to the testimony from eyewitnesses, Frank's jury also heard testimony from forensic and firearms experts regarding the MAC-10 semi-automatic weapon and the Egyptian-made AK-47 assault rifle he used to shoot Officer Garza and Jessica. The jury heard about ballistics evidence regarding the shell casings and bullet fragments found at the crime scene as well as testimony regarding the blood, blood splatter, and other trace evidence removed from the crime scene 
and Frank Garcia's clothing. The foregoing testimony corroborated those portions of Frank's written statement in which he admitted to having emptied both the semi-automatic pistol and assault rifle following his fatal shooting of Officer Garza and Jessica. The defense presented no witnesses or other evidence during the guilt-innocent phase of the capital murder trial. On February 8, 2002, after deliberating less than three hours, Garcia's jury returned a verdict of guilty on the charge of capital murder. During the punishment phase of Frank Garcia's trial, prosecutors presented evidence that showed while being taken to booking on the afternoon after the fatal shootings, Frank responded to a reporter's question with disregard of compassion. Police found inside the Garcia residence photographs of Frank and Jessica each brandishing weapons. When arrested with other gang members in 1992, Frank identified himself as a member of the street gang named Angels of Sin that police believe engaged in drive-by shootings, drug dealings, aggravated assaults, and other felonies. His arrest was for graffiti. The prosecution showed evidence of his rampage, including Frank pointing and firing his weapon at the vice principal of the nearby elementary school, striking the front door of the school. They showed evidence of the one occasion in December of 94, when Jessica sought the protection of the battered women's shelter. Frank once threatened to shoot a teenage neighbor who he believed fired at his vehicle and one of Jessica's friends and co-worker who saw marks and bruises on Jessica on several occasions and was told that Frank forcibly cut her hair. On February 11, 2002, after deliberating approximately four hours, the jury returned its verdict, finding there was a reasonable probability Frank Garcia would commit criminal acts of violence that would constitute a continuing threat to society, and taking into consideration all the evidence, including the circumstances of the offense, Frank's character and background, and his moral culpability, there were insufficient mitigating circumstances to warrant a sentence of life imprisonment rather than a death sentence. Based on the jury's verdict, the state trial court imposed a sentence of death. On January 21, 2004, Garcia's conviction and sentence were affirmed by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals on direct appeal. The defendant did not appeal the state court's decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. He did, however, file an application for habeas corpus relief, which the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals denied on January 20, 2007. On June 11, 2008, Garcia filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Texas San Antonio Division. The federal court denied his petition on December 14, 2009. And on August 9, 2010, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit rejected Garcia's appeal. He filed another petition in the U.S. Supreme Court on November 3, 2010. The U.S. Supreme Court denied that on March 7, 2011. The case took an interesting twist regarding Frank's mother. It was all about the grandchildren for Eustacia Garcia. She didn't want to lose them. According to several reports, she was willing to let the daughter and all leave, just not with the children. But Jessica wasn't about to abandon her babies to the man who was alleged to have battered her for years, nor the in-laws who'd let him. This would not have happened 
if Eustacia Garcia had just let Jessica leave. Contend the Bear County District Attorney's Office, so they've charged her with voluntary manslaughter. Eustacia was aware of the circumstances. She was aware her son was violent, would be violent, and that Jessica was trying to leave when Frank wasn't home in order to avoid violence. Knowing there was a substantial risk, Eustacia acted recklessly in calling Frank, explains then First Assistant District Attorney Michael Bernard. That, in a nutshell, is the definition of voluntary manslaughter, consciously disregarding a substantial and unjustifiable risk. Eustacia Garcia pleaded guilty to criminally negligent homicide and was sentenced to a year in prison. October 27, 2011 would be the last day for Frank Garcia. Texas, in the month previous, had abolished the long-held tradition of allowing condemned inmates to order what they want for their last meal. Instead, they receive what other prisoners are served. The lethal injection, the 12th of that year, in the nation's most active death penalty state of Texas, was delayed by about an hour by a late appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, which denied the appeal about 30 minutes earlier to block the punishment. His attorneys argued Frank Garcia was mentally impaired and ineligible for the death penalty. They also argued for this earlier in the appeals process and at his trial in 2002, but were ineffective and failing to properly address those mental impairment issues. About 50 officers and supporters waving tiny blue lights and arriving aboard a chartered bus stood outside the Huntsville Unit Prison in the rain as the execution was being carried out inside. They repeatedly clapped as a protester down the street shouted into a megaphone how the state of Texas was murdering a prisoner. The now 39-year-old Garcia repeatedly shouted hallelujah and thank you Yahweh and loudly rambled and sang. For this reason I was born and raised, he shouted, raising his head off the death chamber gurney pillow. He was rambling as witnesses filed into the death chamber viewing area, spoke over the warden asking him if he had any statement and stopped briefly moments later to thank the warden. Then he launched into the loud song and ended only as the drugs took effect, cutting him off as he proclaimed, Hallelujah, thank Jesus. Officer Garza's family, including his brother and his wife, were in attendance. His former patrol partner and former supervisor were also there. Because Frank Garcia had no personal witnesses, supporters of Garza's family also stood in his side of the chamber including D.A. Reed, First Assistant District Attorney Cliff Herberg, and Police Union President Mike Hale. San Antonio Police Captain Laura Anderson held Hector's widow. When Garcia was pronounced dead at 7.02 p.m., about 10 minutes after the lethal dose of drugs was administered, one of Garza's relatives comforted another and said, It's done. Susan B. Reed, then District Attorney in Bear County, said she had no reservations about the death penalty in this case. Garza's family, in a statement through the San Antonio Police Department, said they didn't see the punishment as a cause for celebration. Hector would be deeply saddened by the loss of another life. They said, calling the execution, a very necessary reminder that the citizens of this great state will not tolerate the murder of a Texas peace officer and the death penalty imposed must send a loud and clear message to those who would commit such an act. The sadness and anger had not left Hector's older brother and sister. About a decade after his death, they did an interview 
in which they reminisced about their little brother, the jokester, the history buff, the Beatles fan, the proud husband and father who died a hero doing what he loved. His older brother talked about over the years, Hector had opportunities to go to different units in the San Antonio Police Department, but he didn't want to. Adding that even after being shot once, his brother still wanted to be on patrol. He loved patrol. He loved the streets. He talked about how he still hears stories from friends of his brother, fellow cops, residents, business owners. They all talked about how Hector made a joke about this or helped someone with that. The 25-year police veteran was a cop's cop. He was not one for politics. He spoke his mind and he stood behind his fellow officers. Hector Garza had joined the force after a stint in the army. He had enlisted because he didn't want to go to college, something that changed later in life as he graduated in 1999 with a history degree from Wayland Baptist University. A few years after he was killed, the university began the Hector Garza Memorial Award for students graduating in criminal justice. A nominee for the award should be goal-oriented, mature, an encourager, and determined. Hector Garza had hoped when he retired, he would teach and coach, possibly track and field, especially if his two youngest children were involved. Hector had five children. The oldest three sons were from his first marriage. He had a daughter and a son with his now widow, Gilda. Gilda released a statement through the San Antonio Police Department. The execution of Frank Garcia brings a close to a very sad chapter. His wife and children lost a devoted husband and father, and his extended family in blue lost a brother officer committed to protecting his community with pride, dignity, and valor. I'd like to finish with a couple of things that I found on the Officer Down Memorial page, odmp.org. If you go there, you can find just about any officer who's lost their life in the line of duty. And as I've always wanted to do on the show is memorialize people who lost their lives. Jessica, unfortunately, I haven't been able to find much on her. Unfortunately, Frank kind of took over her life. She really didn't have anything outside of her small unit. He didn't let her. I did find that her kids were adopted out. So, Eustacia, in her efforts to keep the grandchildren close to her, lost them forever. But I heard that they were adopted into a really good family. And hopefully, they've been able to move on and live full and enriched lives as I'm sure their mama would have wanted them to. But as far as Officer Hector Garza, it's amazing when you go to this page, you find so many people who had nothing but amazing things to say about this man. I mean, when I found out he was a Beatles fan, the first thing that popped in my head was, that's Paul's grandfather. I loved watching A Hard Day's Night growing up. And I can just imagine him sitting in his car, maybe listening to some Beatles music as he was working his patrol. The first one I found is from a guy who helps train Hector's son. Talks about how his son attends his CrossFit gym. That his son is a strong and silent man. 
and he has one single tattoo. His father's badge over his heart. He helped him create a workout to honor his dad's sacrifice. They did it while sheltering in place during the pandemic. The first part of it is running 2,001 meters or 1.25 miles for the year he died in the line of duty. The second part is six rounds, one for his wife and each for his children. 48 dumbbells ground to overhead, 20 for per arm because he was 48 years old when he was taken. 25 burpees for his 25 years of service. And the last part is 158 box ascents because his badge number was 158. The next one I found is pretty cool. It's from a woman named Leticia. She says in 2001, she was pulled over by patrolman Hector Garza. When he got next to her car window, she had asked him why'd he stop her. And he said, because you're speeding in a school zone. He then asked her for her driver's license and her car insurance which she told him she didn't have either. When he asked her why didn't she have a driver's license, she told him, do you want me to tell you the truth or do you want me to lie? And he said, tell me the truth. She said, por bura. Then he said, well, por bura, I'm going to have to give you a ticket. And he said it while laughing. Go get your license before your court date and the judge will remove your ticket. Now I'm going to give you a warning for the speeding and I'm not going to give you a ticket for no car insurance because that would be a very expensive ticket. Have a nice day. Her court date came around and the judge wanted to fine her for the ticket, but she told him what the officer told her about removing the ticket if she got her license. The judge said, we need to bring the officer in. And when the judge looked down and saw the officer's name, he just told her to go home. She was like, wow, didn't understand. She says a week later, she saw a newspaper at a store that only opens on the weekends. She saw the weekend's paper from last week and his story was on the front page. She couldn't believe her eyes. It was there and then that it hit her why the judge had sent her home. She called him a very funny and nice man on their one encounter. And because of Hector, she got her driver's license. The final one I bring you is from Hector's daughter. It was posted in 2008. She says, hey dad, I can't believe it's been seven years. I miss you a lot. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think of you. I miss your smile and making me laugh. You were and still are a great dad. Mom says when she looks at me, she tells me that I look like you and smiles. I wish I could see you again. I miss you and love you and take care of us in heaven. That got me. I know I talk about how a lot of these cases are hard, but when I came across Officer Hector Garza's case, it hit me really, really deep because there literally was not a bad bone in this man's body. Nowadays, I don't know if you would find an officer who wouldn't walk into that home without their gun drawn. But from everything I've read, Hector never even pulled his gun out of his holster. He may have just hoped to see the best out of every person, no matter how far they went off the edge. 
that's the part I guess that kind of hurts. Jessica was a child when this man started digging his claws into her and, and making it to where she had nobody to go to. And as we heard through the story, she had people who wanted to help her. But domestic cases can seem so misunderstood to so many people. We don't know what they're going through. We don't know what was going through Jessica's head. Was she afraid that if she left, he'd kill her and their children? As far as I know, he never hurt his children, but we don't know what happened behind closed doors. I mean, she only went to the battered women's shelter only once during their entire relationship. And I'm sure there are many times she might have thought about going, but then thought maybe he'd hurt her more if she did go. And where else could she go after that? It just sucks. And for Officer Hector Garza's family, the pain will never go away. I mean, all these people can write all these beautiful things about him, but I know they'd give up every single one of those just to have one more day with him. Hell, I'd love to meet him just once. He sounded like a really cool dude. That's our story. Sorry if I left it on a bummer. If we had more cops like Officer Hector Garza out there, this world would be a better place. Anyways, thank you for tuning in. This has been True Crime San Antonio, and I am just another San Antonio native, hoping to see us through. Take care.